You're listening to a podcast from the BMJ. Welcome to the BMJ podcast. After last week's unpublished data special, we're continuing the trend by looking at how to tackle research misconduct in the UK. In fact, I, I think your situation is often worse if you are a whistleblower in a university than in the NHS. But before that, earlier this week, I talked to Antoine de Clos from the Université de Lyon, who, with his colleagues, have been looking at surgeons' performance over time and how it varies with experience. This research was done in France, so could you sketch out there the post-qualification training and assessment that surgeons need to go through? Usually, continuing education in France is a mandatory process, but it still remains at the convenience, in fact, uh, of the, each physician with a, a certain amount of credits that he will have or she will have to achieve over a five years period. And physicians uh, will have to follow some traditional education or training, like, for example, attending a conference. And more recently, a national accreditation program has been implemented to certify surgeons uh, who are working in IRI specialties then surgeons will have to follow several rules on a voluntary basis. And this will include, for example, the declaration of adverse events or nemesis that may have occurred during mm-hmm. their practice, um, as well as the compliance with the surgical safety checklist in the operating room or the participation in specific education or training seminars. So in France today, uh, continuing education and research certification remains uh, an individual process without any mandatory external evaluation of surgeon knowledge, practice, or outcomes. Um, And so what you've done in this research is you looked at uh, patients who underwent a thyroidectomy. You've looked at them to see how many uh, adverse events took place and how that compared to surgeons' ages. So um, what did you find when you did that? In many domains or trades, like in, in music or sports, the age at which people will reach at peak performance uh, would be after 10 years of mm-hmm. involvement in the specialty. So in surgery, uh, initial learning curve of young surgeons is well known, and very young surgeons will need time uh, at the beginning of their career to train and then to acquire sufficient experience to perform a surgery. But the, on the other side of surgeon's career, the, the final declining curve of older surgeons remains still unclear. Mm-hmm. So based on the analysis, we, we analyzed more than 3,000 uh, thyroidectomy, and which were performed by 30 surgeons in these five uh, academic hospitals. Yep. What we found was that there was both a, this initial learning curve at the beginning of a surgeon's career and also a potentially a declining performance that surgeons seem to experience after 20 years of, of practice. And actually, the, the surgeons who provided the safest care were usually in their 40s, with a length of experience ranging from 5 to 20 years of practice. To measure performance there, you looked at two major complications, uh, laryngeal nerve palsy and hypoparathyroidism. As a, as a measure of performance, how good was that? Do you think that captured enough of the data? Probably a major strength of the study was the, the quality of data we, we were able to collect. Because though thanks to funds we, we get from the Min- French Ministry of Health, we were able to, 
to monitor the outcomes of patients over a six-month period based on the two major complications of thyroidectomy. So um, recurrent laryngeal nerve palsy may really have um, severe consequences on patient quality of life with severe dysphonia, dysphagia, and hypoparathyroidism may cause uh, hypocalcemia, with also, uh, may, which also may be very uh, contraindicated for, for the patient. So, mm-hmm. so we probably have a, a good outcome measurement in this study, but another thing which is maybe important is how we, we, we try to control for potential confounders that may have explained variation in these outcomes uh, um, in conjunction with uh, surgeon experience. And we try to do our best to capture a little bit of, for example, the patient preoperative risk of complication or the complexity of procedures. But even with a, a very large sample of variables to, to, to control, to adjust for, we're we, we never sure that we control for all the confounders. For for example, we we may think that uh, the physical or mental condition of the surgeon for a given day is, very, is a very important variable that may explain part of um, his or her performance, uh, but it's very difficult to measure, and even if we measure this, we, we are not sure that uh, we would be able to capture the, 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 the variation in outcome of the thyroid surgery. So in other words, there may be some reasons for variation that may explain this variation in conjunction of surgeon experience that we may have not, we, we, we didn't capture during the study, and usually, we call that random factors or um, or change because we, we we don't know this factor or we're not able to measure this factor accurately. Mm. So it's kind of pattern you observe that you said you you see elsewhere in terms of of musical achievement or, or sporting achievement. Is there any other research that's looking at other surgical interventions where you've seen this kind of pattern? To whom knowledge, very few studies were uh, conducted on the same topic, and we only found some results, similar results in uh, vascular surgeries based on the retrospective analysis of large administrative hospital databases, so, which tend to, 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 to show the same findings. Mm. But for sure, next step may be to, to, co- to, 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 to conduct similar study with larger cohort of surgeons in different surgical specialties, different uh, uh, settings, in order to, to corbor- corroborate the potential link that may exist between the surgeon experience and performance. If we take the idea that this pattern is found in other places and it's something that people want to correct, is it something that it is possible to mitigate for this, this decline in performance 20 years after after graduation? Um, or is it, do you think, something that that is just a, a function of age? Hmm. Uh, to answer this question, maybe we should know first what, what is the reason, reason for such a declining performance. And then if we are able to know why, we may act on some very specific factors. But, yeah, um, we can make some hypotheses, probably, and the most common hypothesis that uh, authors give uh, related to this recertification of surgeons and, and their revalidation is that older physicians may possess less factual knowledge or may be less likely to adhere to evidence-based care compared to youngest physicians. But th- th- if this may be highly applicable to 
medical specialties. It may be a little bit different in surgery, or if we look at our population of surgeons here, we had a very high volume surgeons repeating the same task every day, sometimes since a very long time. Mm. Then, rather than be related to a lack of compliance with evidence-based care, it may be related to some kind of weariness and mental fatigue. So one way to resolve such a poor performance would be to try to remotivate surgeons and to provide them a real-time feedback about their outcomes. And in case of poor performance, then maybe targeted restrification could be uh, conducted with particular surgeons. Another thing is that to, to help surgeons uh, rethink the way they are practicing, giving them a feedback about their true outcomes may really help them to, 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 to accept this and to change their behavior. Antoine, thank you very much for talking to us today. Thank you very much. And that research article is now available online on bmj.com. Now, research misconduct. This week in BMA House, a meeting held jointly by the BMJ and COPE, that's the Committee on Publication Ethics, discussed how we should tackle research misconduct in the UK. We heard from a range of speakers from the UK and abroad about how we should be tackling this problem, but one of the most compelling was Peter Wilmshurst. You may know of him as the arch-whistleblower who suffered almost a decade-long legal battle in the liable courts as a result of blowing the whistle on misconduct in a trial he was part of. He took time out of his day to talk to me about whistleblowing in the lab. So whilst there is a lot of public attention perhaps on, on clinical whistleblowers, do you think we need to, to think more about whistleblowing in this research context? Well, I think the issues are exactly the same, whistleblowing in research. It's often more difficult to see the context for patients, but if you're talking about clinical research, then it has co uh, consequences for patients indirectly because patients will suffer if uh, false research or fabricated research is put out. So whistleblowers may not know the patient's they're helping or protecting because they may not have direct contact with them, but they are having an effect on patient care exactly the same as whistleblowers on wards or in hospitals. So I don't see the situation as different, and they suffer the same fates. They, they, are, they, they, they get all sorts of penalties. They, they accused uh, people bring up charges against them to discredit them, accuse them of being dishonest, being ill, mentally ill. Um, they try to uh, make their life as difficult as possible, make their working conditions poor. Um, they may get sacked on spurious charges or they may be suspended for a long time without pay so that life becomes very difficult and it also becomes difficult for them to get another job because people don't know exactly what the truth is. They're labelled as troublemakers and people are concerned. And if if they go to another department, people are concerned they're going to raise concerns there. So it's a very, very difficult situation to be in. Whereas these people, as in uh, clinical whistleblowing, are really just protecting the public and the public interest direct patient care or indirect patient care and protecting um, the finances of the public because preventing misuse of public funds. 
if we take the NHS, NHS as an example, um, it seems to me that it would be easier to be a whistleblower in that situation, be you a, a doctor or a nurse, than it would be perhaps if you're a PhD student in a university, which is funding is very different, you're probably not unionised in the way that, that doctors and nurses often are. Um, so do you think there's enough done by universities, um, research institutions, to try and help or protect whistleblowers? In fact, I, I think your situation is often worse if you are a whistleblower in a university than in the NHS. In the NHS, there are, I mean, hospitals are um, governed by the rules and regulations of the NHS. There are meant to be whistleblower policies. They don't work very well, but uh, there is a general view that whistleblowers should be protected. We know that though that view is ignored by many people in authority, but in um, universities which are in fact um, public companies, then there are far less protections for whistleblowers than there are in the NHS, so the situation can be worse. And a consensus statement on how to tackle research misconduct will be available on bmj.com soon. That's all for this week. We'll be back next week with more from the world of medicine. Join us then.